Um, we're going to read again from Daniel chapter 11, picking up at verse 21. Um, on page 749 of the Church Bibles, beginning at verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the, the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time." And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honour the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know he shall honour with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honour. 
he shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Thank you, Izzy, for reading for us. Thank you, Candice, for reading earlier on as well. Um, And for the band who have led us so well uh, tonight. It's an astonishing passage, Daniel chapter 11. And uh, we're going to need the Lord's help as we work our way through it. So let's pray as we begin. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Daniel that we've been working our way through. And as we draw near to the end, we ask, as we've asked many times Uh, for your Spirit's help to understand what this passage says and to apply it to our own hearts that we might be changed and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. All people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So speaks the prophet Isaiah. We're just like grass that withers in the heat or like flowers whose petals fall. Our lives are small and fleeting. Even the most powerful and terrible of men, though they might think themselves great, they're just like grass in the desert heat. The great tide of history will roll on, empires will rise and fall, great men will gain glory for a time, but then lose it all, and we will all turn to dust in the end. But throughout all of that, one thing remains trustworthy and true, the word of the Lord endures forever. In many ways, that quote from Isaiah sums up what Daniel chapter 11 is all about. It begins with a word of truth in verse 2, and it ends with the fall from glory of the final king in verse 45. The passage describes a vision which has been given by the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the prophet Daniel in exile in Persia, in the Persian Empire in the third year of Cyrus the Great. And it's the last of many visions in the book. It goes on until at the end of chapter 12, finishes there, which we'll look at next week. Now, this is going to be one of the sermons that's going to be really helped if you have the Bible open in front of you. All sermons are helped by that, but this one in particular is going to help you. There's lots of text to go through. Um, 
But also, I think it will help us to have a, just a, a sort of brief scan of the outline. So if you've got your service sheet just on the back of uh, the sheet, you see I've just given you the kind of time frame that we're talking about as we go through uh, these verses. And if you can make notes, I think that might help on the way through too. Now, just looking at the back of the sheet there, you can see that the vision is a run-through of history. It's told from the viewpoint of God's people in Israel, and it stretches from 536 BC to 70 AD. That's the time frame. Now, probably, this isn't, it's not likely to be the stuff that you studied in school. We always, in England at least, you did the Tudors, and you did a bit of the Romans, um, but you didn't look at Greek, Greek and Israel in the, these centuries uh, in the Middle East. You didn't, you didn't really do that. But if you've been here for the series in Daniel, what you're going to see tonight will be familiar to you. It's covering the same time period and the same nations uh, that we've already seen in the visions of the book. Now, most famously, we could think back to Daniel chapter 2 and the great metal statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You remember that? That's where it all began. Uh, the statue was like this. He saw this great statue in a dream of a, a man, and the man had a head of gold and a chest of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, and then legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And in the dream, the statue was then smashed by this great rock uh, that was carved by God's hand, which would then become a mountain that filled the earth. That was the dream. And we saw then that the statue represented four kingdoms that would come. Uh, the gold, the gold head, that was Babylon. And then came Medo-Persia, that was silver. Then Greece was the bronze. Then Rome was the iron and that last kingdom, which was a part strong and part brittle, uh, had feet of iron and clay. And then when that kingdom was ruling, when Rome was ruling, God's kingdom would come and fill the whole earth. The great rock who is Jesus Christ, born in the Roman Empire, would come and build an everlasting kingdom. That was Daniel chapter 2, the, the great vision that started the book. And we've seen as we've gone through in Daniel's chapter 7 and chapter 8 and then chapter 9 and then chapter 10 that each of the successive visions have given some detail on that first one. They've expanded on parts of that time period. Okay, so that's the, that's the frame of the book. That's this period of history from Daniel's day to the coming of Jesus' kingdom and chapter 9, if you can remember it, uh, the period of 70 weeks, which concludes with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That's the time frame. Now, here's why, why I need to sort of say that up front. Uh, there are loads of weird and wonderful interpretations of Daniel chapter 11, and I'm sure you can imagine. And some of them have got more credit to them than others. But it makes good logic, I think, if we're to stay within the frame of the book that Daniel lets us interpret Daniel, so to speak. So that's the rationale um, for what I'm going to say. Now, what we're not going to be able to do is go through each verse and pick out every detail. I'm sure there's a big sigh of relief being breathed. Um, that's going to take us way too long um, for tonight. Um, I'd be happy to talk to you about other details late afterwards, though, if you want to discuss anything in it. What we're going to try and do is give the grand sweep of the story 
And we'll just pick out some of the details uh, to show how they correspond to exact events in history. But remember, as we begin, this is predictive prophecy. This is written before these events occurred, well before these events occurred. Let's enter the first age in verse 2. So verse 2 to 4, from Cyrus to Alexander, it's 536 to 331 BC. So in these just three verses, there are 200 years of history predicted. Verse 2. The Son of Man says to Daniel, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. Now this is remarkably accurate. After Cyrus, there was Cambyses, then Badiah, then Darius, three kings in Persia, and then a fourth king, who we're told here is absolutely minted, and he's more powerful than others. And end of verse 2, this guy, the fourth king, he brings the whole force of his empire against Greece. Now, it might be that you actually know who this king is. His name is Xerxes, and he's famous in the Bible for marrying Queen Esther, and he's famous in world history too. And he sends a huge army to fight the Greeks, and he's especially he sends them against these 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, as a famous battle. And he wins that battle, but suffers huge losses and then loses his fleet against the Greeks in Salamis, and then on the land um, at the Battle of Plataea. And this is disastrous military uh, campaign. And from that point, there's a real shift in power. Uh, it enables the Greeks to think, well, uh, we are th these mighty Persians, they are in fact beatable, and things start to shift. And that's where verse 3 comes in. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This is Alexander the Great. About 150 years after Xerxes, this Greek Macedonian king sweeps through and conquers the entire empire of Persia. He's able to do as he pleases, and it happens really fast, but then he dies aged 32, and he has no heir, 323 BC, and his kingdom then is divided and it passes to others, his four generals uh, called the Diadochi. And this is there in verse 4. So there you go, 200 years of history, predicted in 536 BC, which comes to pass just as it says. It's really pretty astonishing. Now, what comes next? Verse 5 to 20. We get the king of the south, this guy Ptolemy, one of the generals, and Seleucus, the king of the north. And again, this is the next sort of 150 years. Focus here is on these, the two most powerful of Alexander's generals and their successors, Ptolemy and Seleucus. And it's told from the perspective of Israel. So that's, that's stuck in the middle of these two great powers. That's why one's called the king of the south, because it's based around Egypt to the south of 
uh, Israel, that's Ptolemy's kingdom. And then you've got Seleucus and his successors, they're called the kings of the, or the king of the north because they're uh, north of Israel. Now the closest comparison um, I can think of this, uh, I can think of this to Israel. It's a bit like Berwick upon Tweed. Has anyone been to Berwick upon Tweed or lived in Berwick upon Tweed? So it's kind of stuck between two great nations, isn't it? So over the course of history, sometimes it's, it's in Scotland and sometimes it's in England. Um, that may or may not help. Uh, probably not. But um, there you go. Let's get back to um, the text here. In 5 to 20, as it's read through, we get the sense of this sort of back and forth between these two powers. There are marriage alliances like the one in verse 6. There are times of peace and there are times of war. There are invasions and there are counterinsurgencies. And in all of these verses, there's a, there's a kind of the full scope of human ambition. There's power plays, there's conspiracies. And once again, we have these predicted events coming true in history. Now, we're not going to look at all of them, but I want us to look at verses 14 to 20, just to give us an example of it. Verse 15 to 16. Now, verses 15 and 16, they describe the king of the north's taking of a fortified city and then his rule being established over what's called the glorious land, which is Israel. And this is a guy called Antiochus III, now, the kings of the north are often called Antiochus, and the ones in the south are often called Ptolemy, and there's sort of six of each, so you have to kind of keep track. But this is Antiochus III, and the historian Polybius, he tells us that this happened, the Battle of Panium in 198 BC. Panius is this fortified city, and at that point, Antiochus III takes control of all Palestine. Then in verse 17, we read about another marriage alliance. To the king of the north, we're told, will give his daughter in marriage to the king of the south. In doing that, he's trying to attempt to kind of exert control and cement power over both kingdoms. He's trying to destroy the southern kingdom and kind of subsume it into his own. But the plan backfires. Look at verse 17. It shall not stand or be to his advantage. And that actually happens. Antiochus III, he arranges for his daughter, a woman called Cleopatra, uh, but not the Cleopatra that you all know. They all have the same names. Uh, she comes to marry this guy of Ptolemy, Ptolemy V. And Antiochus' plan is, well, like, she'll be able to um, exert power over this king and, and I'll be able to bring the Egypt under my control. But she falls in love with Ptolemy and then supports him instead. It doesn't work, just as uh, was predicted. Then verse 18 he launches a campaign in the Mediterranean, the coastlands. And it all goes well, but then a commander defeats him, we're told, in verse 18. And again, that happens. Antiochus III, he's, he's defeated in the Mediterranean by the Romans. And on his return home, he's killed by a mob. Verse 19, he shall turn his face back towards the fortresses of his own land but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then the story goes on. 
when he's defeated by the Romans, he ends up agreeing to pay a massive tribute to them, a thousand talents a year, we're told, which his son then has to pick up because he's dead. And his son, he sends this tax collector, a guy called Heliodorus, to round up cash from the people of Israel. Verse 20 is exactly there, isn't it? Verse 20, this tax collector arrives, an exactor of tributes. But then that king's killed, partly because he, he stole everyone's money, but not in battle or in violence, but by being poisoned by that same tax collector. He doesn't die in violence. It's exactly here. Do you see the accuracy? Just an example, just these events of these verses. And it's the same for the other ones. The rest of the verses are just the same. All predicted here all coming true in this period of history. really is amazing. And for the people of God, who are small and stuck in the middle of these events, as they unfold, well, what a comfort it must have been to know that history is indeed in the hand of the Son of Man. That he knew it was coming, that he wasn't panicked by it or fearful of it. He simply told them what to expect so that they wouldn't be surprised or shaken when it came about. And in time, they discovered that though men were like grass and the flowers of the field, whose glory withers and falls in the heat, God's word does indeed endure forever. But from verse 21, there are ominous times to come. And that's where the vision turns next. It gets much darker in verse 21. Verse 21 to 35, we meet this character, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, we've met this bloke before. If you can remember way back in chapter 8, he was the little horn of that vision. And you might remember, if you were here for that, Um, service. Robin put a picture up on the screen of his statue and it kind of seemed to, even in in stone, seemed to ooze violence and evil. He's the next king of the north. He's a Seleucid king. And he'll be the one who enacts horrors on the Jewish people and will desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 21. There shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenants. So here we're getting more detail about this figure we were introduced to earlier on. And as the verse says, he wasn't the rightful heir to the throne. His older brother was. Uh, but his older brother was stuck in a Roman prison. So Antiochus, he bribes powerful people into supporting his claim. And he's a monster. He gets rid of all opposition to secure his reign, and including even removing and then assassinating one of the high priests, a man called Ananias, who I think is what's meant by the prince of the covenant here. Now verse 21 to 35 are about two of his campaigns, two military campaigns, against the king of the south in Egypt. The first campaign 
uh, runs in the paragraph there from verse 21 all the way through to verse 28. And the first campaign, through a, a combination of, of military genius and political scheming, he achieves a great victory. He, he comes back with loads of cash and loads of uh, plunder. But when he gets back to the north, he goes past Israel and he discovers that Israel is in revolt and he brutally puts it down. According to one report, 80,000 men, women and children are killed and the temples plundered. Just look at verse 28. He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. It's a worrying words. That's the end of the first campaign. Verse 29 to 35 describes this prediction of his second campaign against Egypt. And this one ends in humiliation and defeat. Verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. Seems a, a new player has entered, entered the game. Uh, the ships of Kittim. Now, who's that? Well, Kittim's the Mediterranean lands. In other words, Rome. Rome joins forces with the Ptolemaic kingdom in the south and it sends Antiochus packing. There's a famous scene um, recorded by the Roman historians. The, the Roman commander, he meets Antiochus outside Alexandria in Egypt and he hands him this letter from the Roman Senate which tells him basically, you've got to leave Egypt or you'll go to war with Rome. And the general, he, he draws this circle on the floor in the sand um, around Antiochus and he says, look, you've got to decide what you want to do before you leave the circle. And it's a pretty serious threat, obviously, at that point, and he wisely decides, well, I'm not going to risk war um, with Rome. But of course, he's humiliated by that. And he does what all bullies do when they're humiliated by someone stronger, he takes his rage out on someone weaker. And who would that be? End of verse 30. He shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. What he does is there in verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Antiochus sought to end the Jewish religion. He stormed the temple with his army, he made sacrifices illegal, and then he sets up an idol to Zeus inside the temple and sacrifices pigs on the altar. It's the abomination that makes desolate. Here. It's awful blasphemies. And at this point in their history, the Jewish people were divided. This comes across in these verses. Some of them support the Greek overlord out of self-interest. Antiochus rewards them with bribes and with positions of authority. Verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But still, there are some who are still faithful to God 
And these are the people who are called the Maccabees in the Jewish histories. And they fight back against these horrors. Look at the end of uh, verse 32. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. These Maccabees, they launch a rebellion. Thousands die, but in the end they win. And in 164 BC, they're able to rededicate the temple. And Antiochus, he dies, and he goes to his grave to face God's judgment. And this is a great relief, because it really did look like this was the end for the people of God, the end of the Jewish religion. But it wasn't. And verse 35 tells us that the end is still to come. There's an appointed time. Now let's pause there. There's a lot of information there. Now so far, so far so good. And pretty much everybody, all the major commentators, they agree with the interpretation that I've just given for those verses. But from verse 36, things get a bit more contentious. Why? Well, because in verse 36, we get this reference to the king. And the question is, which king? And some people say, well, look, this is still Antiochus that we're talking about. It's going over the same ground uh, that we've gone over before. And it could be, but, but it's difficult to fit the events that come in with what we know of his life or that of his successors. And so some people say, well, okay, well, it's not, it's not Antiochus, but it's, he's, it's like people like him. It's a, he's a type of people who will come. And so this refers to a future king, a future even to us today. They say, well, this one is, it refers to someone who's called in the New Testament the Antichrist. And again, that's possible, I suppose, because the way that um, he's described here, it does sound like a kind of antichrist-type figure. But if we were to go with that, well, that would be a big jump in our timeline, wouldn't it? It would suddenly propel us out of the frame of the book into the future. So I don't, I don't think that's right. Um, I'm happy to, to chat to anyone after. People may have quite strong opinions about that. I'm happy to, um, to talk about that. But I do think there's a better choice. And that's Rome. And not just one Roman king specifically, but the dynasty of Roman leaders um, from Antiochus' time onwards, ending with the Emperor Vespasian in AD 70. Now, I want to just spend our... Uh, the remainder of our time explaining that. Now, just to say that, that that's not a new scheme that I've just come up with um, on my own. Um, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, I do think it's right, but I'm, le I'm leaning on the understanding of um, John Calvin. And you can, you can read his thoughts uh, on this in, in his commentary which you can, on Daniel, which you can get online. But just as we, it was read, as it's read through, you do notice something different about verses 36 to 40. It changes tone. What happens is we stop traveling down through history. We stop reading about events, and we have to pause and think. It's not so much concerned with the events of the king's campaign, uh, the king's reign, 
But with the character of the king or the, or the empire, and what's described fits very well with our, what we know of Rome. Just have a look at me. Uh, have a look at it. No, don't look at me. Look at it. <laughs> you can look at me if you want, but I'd rather you looked at uh, what the passage says. Uh, look, have a look at verse 36. So this king, he shall do as he wills. He does as he pleases. It's as if nothing can stop him. He bestows divine status upon himself. He magnifies himself above every god. He refuses to recognize the God of Israel, just speak astonishing things against the God of gods. See, the Romans, they absolutely saw themselves as superior, and they told the nations that they conquered who could be worshipped and in what way. And the Jewish God was never incorporated into the Roman pantheon. As we read on, we're told increasingly that this king will focus his worship on the god of fortresses. In other words, that the war machine itself will become its god, as it sort of chews up the lands that it enters. Actually, that sounds a lot like the fourth beast of chapter 7, the vision of chapter 7, which was the most terrifying of beasts, one that had iron teeth which we can identify with Rome also. Then verse 39, it says that it divides the lands that it conquers, giving it to client kings. And this is what Rome does. And it, and it actually is exactly what happens in Israel. See, when Herod and his descendants come to power, just before the time of the New Testament, they're appointed by Rome and the land then gets divvied up into, not, not as kept as Israel, but divvied up into Roman provinces, uh, like Judea and Galilee and, and places like that. So all of that together, it sounds to me that that's a pretty good fit for what we have described here. But particularly what clinches it for me is the reference in verse 36 to what is decreed. So he shall prosper, end of verse 36, he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Now that word decreed there, that's a really rare Hebrew word, and it occurs only three times in the book of Daniel, and the other two references are in chapter 9, verse 26 and 27. Now chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, we're, we're in the vision of 70 weeks, and the last week of which is described in those two verses. And Robin explained it when he preached on this passage to us uh, like this. He said that the decree made there refers to the time of the death of the Messiah, the time when atonement for sins would be made, and the time when the final destruction of the temple would occur. That was what God decreed. The abominations that would make desolate would come again, not just with Antiochus, but again in a future date. And that time it would be total. That was God's decree in chapter 9. And so here we find that same word, that God's decree takes place in the age of this king. And so I think it must refer to the age of Rome, the age when Jesus is born, when he lives 
and when he's crucified for the forgiveness of sins before rising from the dead. This is the age when the kingdom of God begins and the age when the old covenant religion of Judaism is brought to a close by the destruction of the temple. And that period is what's referred to next as the time of the end, verse 40. Okay, now that's, the, that's if you like the tricky bit. And the tricky bit over. Okay, what's, this, what's this age that we're talking about? We're in the final leg of the journey, verse 40 to 45. And so notice verse 40 to 45, we're now talking about the events again, and we're talking about the time of the end. It begins with the Roman Civil War. So in this period, the general Mark Antony, he's got control of Egypt with Cleopatra. Now this is the Cleopatra that you know about. He's king of the south at this time. He controls that region. And against them on land and on sea comes another Roman, a guy called Octavian. He's the king of the north. And Octavian, he wins, and he becomes the first emperor, Augustus. And it's all here in these verses. Here, the Son of Man predicts that Rome will establish its empire. Some lands, like Egypt, it will conquer by force, he says. And others, it will conquer by diplomacy, like those mentioned in verse 43. It's not without difficulty, rebellions plague the Roman Empire, especially those on the northern and eastern frontiers, verse 44. They keep having to be put down. But there's one place in particular that concerns the Son of Man, the glorious land, the land of God's people, the place that he chose for his temple. See, the people have suffered much through the centuries. The land's been this pawn in the games of empires and great kings as they sort of swirl around it and roll over it. But what will be its fate? What will be the fate of the people of God? And this part of the vision closes with both ominous signs and with a glimmer of hope. Verse 45. And he, that's Rome shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. We're left with a, a vision of the Roman army camped outside the walls of Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Jerusalem's besieged in AD 70. And verse 36 told us that a desolation decreed by God has not yet come to pass. So it doesn't look good. But even then, the enemies of God will not triumph. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And we'll see next week what happens next. In the words of Daniel 2, we've travelled from the gold head of Babylon down to the iron feet of Rome. And so perhaps we're anticipating the great rock coming to smash the feet of the statue. But we'll find out next week. That's the vision. Well done for making it through. What's it given to Daniel for? 
And what's it given to us for? Why do we need to know this tonight? Well, three things that it teaches us uh, as we close. Number one, that we are very small and the power of empires and kings is very big, but God rules all. That, I think, is the big sense of this passage. The people of God, they're like a, a rowing boat in, in the great stormy oceans of empires and kings. And several times it looks like the waves will swamp the boat and it will go under. But every time the Lord preserves his people. And that is really a message that we need to hear today, isn't it? It's certainly a message that the Ukrainian church needs to hear today, but us too. That God rules all. And even though we're very small and have little power, he will bring his people through the centuries. He will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the first thing. Second is this, that the wise cling to the covenant and stand firm. Now this came through a little bit in the vision about Antiochus, but we didn't really say much about it. In times of suffering, some will forsake God. Some will look for an easy way out. They'll compromise with the world. But the wise, even though they may die under the hand of the persecutors... They never compromise. They keep on clinging to God and to his word, to his covenant promises. His promises that he will love them and that he will keep them always. So that's the second thing. First thing, we're really small. The powers of empires are big, but God rules all. Second thing, the wise cling to the covenant promises of God and stand firm. And then the third thing, all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So we're so convinced that we're the masters of our own destiny. We think that we can make a name for ourselves and win glory for ourselves, but in the end we all turn to dust God's word decrees the course of history. It's all predicted centuries before it happens. God rules and his word never fails to come to pass. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we, as we come to you tonight in this little part of town and in, in a, a congregation, we realise that we are very small. We realise that the powers out there are very big and scary. And so, Lord God, would you make it real to our hearts tonight that we may believe that you really do rule all. Lord, may we cling to your covenant love and promises. And Lord God, may we trust your word. We thank you that the word of the Lord does endure forever, that you know the future, 
and that every word 